Welcome to Living Downstream, the environmental justice podcast. I'm your host, Steve Mencher. Tribes in California and all over the U.S. are raising their voices to protect their cultural sites and the environment. Relationships between these tribes and local and federal governments can be fraught, even in the best of circumstances. But if you're a tribe that lacks what's known as federal recognition, that's status that gives tribes the ability to deal with the government as a sovereign, then it's nearly impossible. Still, some unrecognized tribes in the Golden State are crafting unique workarounds to address cultural and environmental protection. Producers Deborah Kroll and Allison Herrera report on what steps some of these federally unrecognized tribes are taking to protect what they have. We're going left. It's one of those perfect California spring days in the Sierra foothills. The kind where the smell of pine and oak trees, grass, and manzanita wafts through a rolled-down window. Producer Deborah Kroll is driving with Ron Good. He's the tribal chairman of the North Fork Mono tribe to get to Bass Lake, located deep in the heart of the Sierra National Forest. Good is pointing out trees and meadows the tribe has been restoring. We've been here in our area for thousands of years. Um, down in the lower foothills for a good 500 years before we uh, move some of the Yokutch Indians down a little bit lower out of our area. So we've been taking care of our land for quite some time. The Mono people's 1.2 million acre ancestral land base encompasses portions of Fresno, Mariposa, and Inyo counties including parts of the Sierra Nevada. In the early 1990s, the tribe began to work on restoration and enhancement of its cultural resources in partnership with those same three counties. So what's the elevation of this meadow that we're going to? 3,400. Oh, that's not bad. No. After about an hour or so drive, Good and Deborah reach their destination. It's a small meadow in the Sierra National Forest. As they drive along, Good warned about the dead trees. That's the result of California's historic drought, when about 150 million trees died. But you can see what's happening now. They're falling. Yeah. They're very dangerous, actually. Yeah. Ron explains that even though so many trees were lost due to fires and drought, the site they passed by wasn't declared a disaster by the National Forest Service. But we've restored this whole meadow you can see it's all green and how wet it is because the little uh, spring grasses are all right here and um, we brought the water back by clearing it and opening it up this meadow is part of the tribe's cultural resources it provides not only water but acorns something the mono use for food it's considered something vital to their culture and the tribe's survival 
Good is pleased by the partnership the tribe has with surrounding landowners who want the tribe to have access to acorns on their land. And so some of these families that now own the lands, uh, non-Indians, they actually still work with the Indian people. And so they allow them to come on and, and gather acorns and stuff. And they'll even get to the point to where they even call. Hey, we got a lot of acorns down and they're falling, you know. Got to get out here and come pick them up. Being able to gather acorns isn't the only cultural resource the North Fork Mono have been able to protect. Good points to a grove of oaks. And then we have uh, had 64 black oaks, but I think it's closer to 60 now because a few of them died or got fell. And then, uh, so when we're looking at that, then we have close to 100 new oaks coming up. And so uh, those are some of the monitoring that we've done. Last year, 2018, was like the best acorn year. And we had over seven trees that were what we call abundant. So we got uh, bagfuls and bucketfuls of acorn out of these trees. So that's been really good. 64 black oaks may seem like a small number, but to good, that's a lot considering that millions of trees in this area were lost. So he counts his blessings. These oaks are surviving and thriving. And so are other cultural resources. Things like huckleberries, manzanita, and plants used in basketry. Deer, fish, crow, and turkey vultures are also making a comeback. At one point in time, all of these things sustained the tribe, and Good's goal is to keep reintroducing these things. What we and how we judge our success is by the resources that are now available to us, and we monitor those resources, whether it be acorn, uh, young oaks, how many oaks do we have, how many young oaks are, are coming up, how many um, different plants, and we had over 200 different cultural resources that we used. Restoring these lands also restores and sustains the unique relationship the North Fork Mono have with these things, and Good and his tribe are in a fight to protect them. Why? Because the North Fork Mono exist in a twilight zone between being recognized and unrecognized by the federal government. After the government's promise of a reservation fell through in 1852, Mono families obtained land allotments. Today, the North Fork Mono tribe has 52 allotments, covering well over 10,000 acres of land. That twilight zone means they don't have status to be able to interact with the federal or state government to help them protect these meadows and trees they're trying to restore and other lands of huge importance to the tribe. California Indian people, certainly in the 19th century and continuing on in the 20th and in the early 21st, are up against uh, having to fight as populations that 
claim a Native identity, but are not recognized legally as having that Native identity. So they don't stand in a parallel stead to either the state government or the federal government. That's Lisa Emmerich. She's a professor emeritus of history and American Indian studies at the California State University in Chico. She checked and told us that 55 indigenous communities in California are not on the Bureau of Indian Affairs list of recognized tribes. That's the document used by the feds to provide funding and technical assistance to tribal governments for education, health care, governance, environmental protection, and many other activities. So it's the difference between someone who is an interested bystander or a member of a local community agitating on behalf of sacred sites and an individual who has more legal clout to do so. In fact, California has the largest number of unrecognized tribes. One of the biggest reasons, unratified treaties in the state of California. Eighteen treaties between tribes and the federal government were signed between 1851 and 52, but the Senate declined to ratify them, instead hiding them away in a drawer for 50 years. That decision was based on pressure from the California congressional delegation. The concern was that California Indians would get the best land and resources. Tribes thought they had a land base, but it turned out they didn't. Another reason many California Indian tribes lack federal recognition can be tied back to federal government policy, Emmerich says. But then in the 1950s, when the U.S. government instituted termination policy, they lost that legal status through a deliberate attempt by the U.S. government to carry out what was really a paper genocide um, by denying Native nations and their citizens their legal rights as sovereign entities. What she means by that is the government was basically erasing their identity. Today, there are laws on the books in California that protect federally recognized and federally unrecognized tribes when it comes to their sacred sites and cultural resources. California's Native American Heritage Commission does not follow the federal government's path of excluding non-recognized tribes from its list of California Indian tribes. So that provides a little more protection to the non-recognized tribes in terms of conversations over cultural resources and um, the consultation process between agencies or localities and Native communities. Emmerich says even when the federal government does recognize tribes, the relationship is prickly at best. And for tribes who don't have recognition and the financial means, well, they're at the mercy of the local government officials who may or may not let them have a seat at the bargaining table when it comes to projects on their lands. The YTT Northern Chumash on California's central coast is one indigenous community that has had some success. So my name is Mona Olivas Tucker, and I'm the tribal chair for Yaktiju Tichu Yaktalhini a northern Chumash tribe of uh, San Luis Obispo County and region. Um, our members are comprised of families whose ancestry dates back to this one region for well over 10,000 years. And many of our families have never lived anywhere else. 
The YTT Northern Chumash are federally unrecognized, despite their well-documented territory, which includes parts of Pismo Beach, Nipomo, and the breathtaking views of the Pacific Ocean as you make the four-hour drive up U.S. Highway 101 from Los Angeles. Olivas Tucker appreciates the work the Heritage Commission has done to help tribes like hers. There's a Native American Heritage Commission based out of Sacramento. It's the California State Native American Heritage Commission, who I think try very hard uh, to be helpful to tribes federally recognized and unfederally recognized. Over the years, the YTT Northern Chumash have had some experience managing relationships with a variety of state and local agencies. But it all depends on who you're working with, she says. Um, When you're not federally recognized, you do have greater difficulty in getting to the conference table, getting in on uh, discussions about your area. An example is the Bureau of Energy Management. Uh, However, they have been cordial to the best that they can. We're not a federally recognized tribe, so we have the status as a typical uh, member of the public. We don't have a special status with them. Special status means protection. In California, some state laws and policies offer some protection. In September of 2011, then-Governor Brown issued an executive order that requires all state agencies to engage in meaningful consultation with indigenous tribes in California, whether federally recognized or not. The California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA, was amended in 2014 to allow tribal protections. This also applies to non-recognized tribes. But laws only go so far, and those protections are only as good as the next administration's priorities. But for now, they seem to be working to help some non-recognized indigenous tribes with environmental and cultural protection of their sites. For the YTT Northern Chumash, one of those culturally affiliated sites is near the Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant located about 10 miles south of San Luis Obispo. The tribe was given a historic preservation award, along with students and professors from nearby California Polytechnic State University, known as Cal Poly, to protect that cultural site. Reached by phone, Olivas Tucker said that family members in the tribe have a connection there going back thousands of years. She said both Cal Poly and Pacific Gas and Electric were respectful partners. We were very happy to participate um, in this. And this is work that was done for multiple purposes uh, to preserve it and to conserve, um, definitely. But it was also subject to some other um, problems. Um, It had been in agricultural use for a long time. Um, There's a an area that was subject to erosion. There was a dam, an earthen dam that was built nearby that was um, had the potential for perhaps collapsing. About three hours north from where Mona Olivas Tucker lives is the Amamutsun's tribal territory. It encompasses part of what's known today as Santa Cruz, San Benito, and Monterey counties. Hello! Oh my gosh, what a, what a deal! Okay. Yeah, now they knew which one to take. <laughs> That's Valentin Lopez. He's been the tribal chair of the 600-member Amamutsun tribe since 2003. 
Their tribal territory is considered prime real estate, dotted with multi-million dollar homes in upscale communities. But the Amamutsan have few resources. Our tribe is very poor. We do not own any land. The vast majority of, of us cannot even afford to live in our territory. Um, and so we have to live in the Central Valley versus along the coast or in the um, Gilroy, Hollister, Morgan Hill area. And so um, we just did, could not see how that was possible to get back and take care of Mother Earth in our territory. Lopez said that in 2006, elders attended a tribal council meeting and gave him a directive. Our creation story tells us the Creator gave us a responsibility to take care of Mother Earth and all living things. And Creator has never taken away or, or, or rescinded that obligation. And that remains our obligation today, and we have to find a way to do that. Lopez says he left that meeting slightly terrified. How would he fulfill that promise, he wondered. Amamutsan, like the Waititi Northern Chumash, are also federally non-recognized. So when projects are proposed that will affect some of their sites, they're lucky if they even get consulted. This time, they did get lucky. And it wasn't long after that that we got a call from the superintendent at Pinnacles National Park. And he invited us to come in and be part of the park. And he, he had just transferred in from another park where he had a great relationship with the tribe. And he said, um, this, I recognize this is your territory. He says, you need, to, you need to have a voice at this park and talk to us. The initial call has evolved into a partnership, including conducting cultural burns and nurturing basketry and other culturally significant plants within Pinnacle's land. Lopez says they were scared at first because the tribe had lost so much knowledge, but they had a powerful tool. Some 78,000 pages of notes compiled by anthropologist John P. Harrington, collected from the Amamutsan's last traditional leader, Asuncion Solarzano, a noted doctora and culture bearer who passed away in 1930. Using those notes, the Amamutsan have been rebuilding and restoring that precious traditional ecological knowledge that will, they hope, lead to restoring their lands. We believe that we know that we have Creator with us. We know we have our ancestors with us. We know that the others are uh, uh, need to learn this information and stuff like that. What Lopez means is that if the ecology collapses, they will survive because of their preservation efforts to hold on to what they have, their lands, plants, animals, and their culture. Despite centuries of loss, California Indian communities like the Amamutsan, the Waititi Northern Chumash, and the North Fork Mono are still sharing rich knowledge with the world and Californians. Um, I'm saying quite frequently now that if we're going to ever recover and heal from climate change, um, it's the indigenous people that will show the way. And our tribe is working hard now to prepare ourselves um, to be such a leader. In other words, if indigenous communities federally recognized or not thrive, so does everyone else. For Living Downstream, I'm Allison Herrera.
Justice for Unrecognized Tribes was reported and produced by Deborah Kroll and Allison Herrera. The Living Downstream theme music was written by David Shulman. Engineering support from Anthony Garcia. I'm your host and senior producer, Steve Mencher. Northern California Public Media's news department also includes reporter Adia White. Darren Lachelle is the executive producer, and the president and CEO of Northern California Public Media is Nancy Dobbs. Subscribe to Living Downstream wherever you get your podcasts. Visit our website at norcalpublicmedia.org living. And if you see environmental injustice in your community, write to us at living at norcalpublicmedia.org. Living Downstream thanks our sponsors who make this podcast possible. A list is available at norcalpublicmedia.org. Next time, we follow up on our most impactful story of the season, Forgotten Civilians at Eglin Air Force Base Part 2, reported by John Kalish. Don't miss it. <laughs>